Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. And the title of today's message is The Reality of Accountability. And the reason that we came up with this title is because what you will see is that he's going to start speaking to the churches. And in chapters 1, 2, and 3, the primary focus is on the church before we get into the tribulation. And what we're going to see is that there's a payday someday, there's an accountability, and the image you're going to see of Jesus is unlike you've ever seen before in the New Testament. Seventy percent of the churches do not teach the book of Revelation. And I heard that stat a long time ago, and I cannot remember who said that, but the more I understand things, the more I see the way our climate is, that's pretty accurate. And there's a reason why. Because this book portrays the Messiah in the king, warrior, judge attribute of Messiah that makes people very uncomfortable. And obviously, that's why a lot of churches don't preach it. They also won't preach the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, you see the judgment hand of God many, many times on nations and what He does and telling Joshua to go in and slaughter people and drive them out of the land. And in today's society, people don't like that. It makes them feel uncomfortable. And unfortunately, they're missing a vital aspect of God, and they're missing God's justice. They like the love of God. They like the grace, and they like the mercy. They like the image of Jesus surrounded by kids and holding a lamb around his neck. They like the picture of Jesus as a Scandinavian man with blonde hair and blue eyes, six foot four. And they have this image of Jesus, that he's some buddy of theirs, some friend of theirs. And there's no doubt the message is to believers, but the image of Jesus you're going to see a lot of people do not like, especially even Christians, believe it or not. And this is why this book is not taught, because it shows a picture of Jesus in judgment. And a lot of people don't like it. That's why this book is not taught. That's why there's a blessing attached to this book, because God assumes that a lot of people won't study it. They won't look at it. They won't see the judgment that follows. So we're going to dive right into it. And we're going to make sure we have a balanced view of Jesus. You must balance the love, the mercy, and the grace with the justice of Jesus Otherwise, you will get a very distorted picture of Jesus, and we don't want to do that. Jesus is not our buddy. He is not the man upstairs. He is not the sky buddy. He is not our homeboy or anything like that. He's the judge, and you're going to see him in that role today. There should be an element as you study this passage that frightens you, and it should. Paul talked about the terror of the Lord. And what it means is we're not terrified of Jesus because we're going to hell, because we're not. If you've come to faith in Him, you're not going to hell. 
But the terror of the Lord that Paul talked about was the terror of standing before him in his glory and him judging our works and for the reward. And that's what you're going to see today. And so it's a healthy picture of Jesus. We need to see it. We need to embrace it. And we need to understand what it's there for because there's some application to this. It brings accountability. There is accountability to our lives. And it's that accountability that one day we will stand before our Lord and go through our whole life and account for everything we did. Again, for rewards, not for eternal damnation, because if you're in Christ, you're safe, but for rewards. So this accountability is what we're going to look at. So let's dive in and let's get into the first principle. And the first principle is this. We are accountable for our faithfulness to the glorified Messiah in difficult circumstances. That's the first thing we start seeing as we look into this chapter. And we look at John explaining the difficult circumstances he was in. And this is our model. Start in verse 9 with me. I, John, both your brother, spiritual brother, obviously, and companion. Companion in three things. He's our companion and fellowshipping in what? In his experience, he's experiencing what you and I are experiencing. He says, in the tribulation not the great tribulation, but the tribulation that was promised to the church. In this life, you will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. And it's a common experience among all Christians. And even John was experiencing this difficulty, and I'll explain it in just a bit. But this common experience of being a partaker in the tribulation, that's the hallmark of Christianity, that we're all fighting the good fight, that we're all in the race, that we're all dealing with some type of difficulty, some level of persecution around the world, some Christians more than others. But at some point, we're all dealing with this tribulation, difficult circumstances. In John's day, when he was writing this, Emperor Domitian was the emperor. And at this point in time, Emperor Domitian was killing Christians. At this point, he had killed up to 40,000 Christians for their faith. And so he's explaining that I am your brother who is suffering with you. And it's also a message to us that if you're dealing with persecution, if you're dealing with tribulation, I'm with you, he says. And then the second aspect is the kingdom, the messianic millennial kingdom that Jesus will usher in. He is saying, we're all connected to this. Our suffering, our tribulation is connected to the kingdom, which means that you will be rewarded for your faithfulness in trials in the kingdom. He goes, so we're participating in that. And then in the patience, he says, patience, endurance, perseverance in extreme difficulty. And he says, of Christ. So those are the three aspects. He says, I'm your brother and companion in these three aspects, in your suffering, in the kingdom, and in the patience. We're all dealing with that to some level. We all have to deal with patience and endurance as we wait for Jesus to come back for us. As we wait for him to establish his kingdom, we're in that patience and endurance as we deal with the trials of our life and the tribulations. So he sets that out, and then he says specifically what was going on with him. He says, I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So not only preaching and teaching the word of God, but evangelizing and explaining the gospel to people. So he was doing the ministry and evangelizing. John was the pastor in Ephesus for many, many years, and apparently he had gotten arrested. Now, here's what happened with him. 
He got arrested and they tried to kill him. He was one of the last apostles to be alive at this point in time. All the other apostles had been martyred. A lot of them had been martyred by Nero. And this is in the 90s, mid-90s A.D. Well, eventually Domitian tried to kill him. And what they tried to do is boil him in hot oil. And this is according to early church fathers of Eusebius and Victoranius explained that they tried to boil John and kill him. But supernaturally, God protected him, and he wouldn't die. He wouldn't boil. Nothing happened to him. It was a supernatural intervention by the Lord to prevent him from dying. This freaked out the Roman authorities because they were highly superstitious. And so they were afraid of John because they tried to kill him, and he wouldn't boil. So what they ended up doing, the only thing they could do because of their superstition, is they exiled him. And they put him on Patmos. And I got some pictures I want you to see of what Patmos looks like. And Patmos is over here. This is Turkey, and you can see the star right there. Patmos is a little island off of Turkey. And it became a place where they would exile prisoners there and put people that they just couldn't deal with, and they put him there. He spent about 18 months on Patmos. Let me show you some other pictures so you can kind of get an idea. This is what the island looks like from above. In John's day, it was kind of a deserted island. It was a penal colony. I guess the modern-day equivalent would be like Alcatraz. That was their Alcatraz for the Roman Empire, is Patmos. If you look at some pictures today, you can kind of see it's very desolate, and it's pretty dry. And let's go to the next one. I think we have a few more pictures, and you can see some inhabitants there. But this is Patmos, and you can kind of see the water and stuff like that. Again, this is off the coast of Turkey. Let's go to the next one. They now have a small community that lives there now, and it's become a seaport. And a lot of tourists go there because they want to see the, where John was, a lot of Christian tourists. And you can see down, looking down into some of the valleys of Patmos, and, and there's some other inhabitants there. And they bring in the cruise ships in there because they're usually on the journeys of Paul, and they'll stop in Patmos to look where John was exiled at. And right there, what I want to show you is what they did is when they put the prisoners on Patmos, they quarried out of Patmos. And so that's an ancient quarry, probably from John's day. And you can see the quarry holes that a lot of the prisoners were digging out during that day. And that's probably what John was doing. I don't know how much work he was doing. John at this time is probably about 90 years old, somewhere in that neighborhood. He's very old. So that kind of gives us an idea. And... What was happening, and again, and this comes back to his accountability and the application to us, is John was faithful under the most extreme circumstances. He was boiled in hot oil, and he stayed faithful to our Lord. And that's the idea of faithfulness. And again, that's the test that you and I will have in this life. This is the application before we move on to what we want to take from this, is that your faith is going to be tested by trials and tribulations. It will happen to us. And the issue that we're accountable to is we're going to have to account to the Lord of how we dealt with these things. And here's the deal before we move. Faithfulness is typically not championed. It's typically not seen. Do you know why? Because it's disguised and we don't see it. Well, how is it disguised? It's disguised in one of two ways. It's disguised in either hard work or a difficult problem. 
So when hard work approaches us or a difficult problem approaches us, you will have to make a decision, especially if it's coming from the Lord, of whether you're going to deal with it or not. And that becomes the test of faithfulness. Faithfulness is the grind. Faithfulness is not leaving your task. And John didn't leave his task. He was continuing to be a pastor. No matter what they did to him, he was still ministering. Even when he got off the island of Patmos, he went back and started ministering until the day he died. He didn't stop. And that's the idea. And so here's what needs to be understood is that you and I are being tested. And the unseen world is watching this. And here's the test. Will you and I be faithful despite Satan throwing all kinds of problems our way, despite the hard work that's involved in dealing with problems? Do you remember Job? If you read the book of Job, Job is a picture of all of humanity. He's a picture of whether or not humanity will serve God, despite what happens to him. I want you to read Job with me so you can see how this test is played out, because this is what John endured. And we read in Job chapter 1, just read this with me, watch the, the drama. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, these are the angels and demons as well, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you. To your face. That's the test. It happened to Job and it's happening to all believers. Satan's accusation against us is they only serve you when things are going well in their life. They only serve you when life is easy. Make it hard on them and I guarantee you they will abandon you. They will leave. They will stop. They will become discouraged. I guarantee it. That is the test that you and I are being put through of whether or not we will be faithful to the Lord through it all. Now, I won't read the rest of the story, but as you know, the rest of the story, things are being taken away from Job, everything, his family, his property, everything. And the end of the story, Job tears his clothes, shaves his head, and worships the Lord and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, it says, Job did not charge God with wrong. And that's the test. And it's going to come to you in either a hard work or a problem. Now, here's the deal. We have a choice. In the test, John had a choice. He could have renounced Christ when they were getting ready to boil him, but he didn't. He could have renounced Christ on the island of Patmos, but he didn't. A lot of Christians actually did, believe it or not. That was one of the things the early church had a problem with. They had a lot of Christians who defected and ran from persecution. 
and gave incense to Caesar. So what do we do? Well, the first thing we have to understand is understand where the disguise is. It's hard work or it's pain. And here's the deal. We can avoid the pain now, but the payoff will never come. So the issue that God's saying is, will you be faithful to face the pain now, face it early, and the payoff will come later. But here's the deal. This is what separates faithful Christians versus unfaithful Christian, and it's how they're dealing with their problems and pain specifically. This is what separates people is how they deal with pain. Think about this. The pain of giving up something that brings pleasure or relief, but you know it's destroying us. It's hard, isn't it? That's the test. The pain of having to deal with the baggage from the past. It's hard, isn't it? The pain of having to confront a person that you need to have that difficult conversation with. That's hard, isn't it? That's the test. The pain of the risk of faith, not knowing 100% what's going to happen. It's hard. The pain of grieving and letting go. A lot of people avoid grief. They don't want to deal with it, and they run from it because it's painful. The pain of facing a character flaw in ourselves, a pattern in our behavior that needs to be fixed, the pain of breaking off a bad relationship, the pain of breaking off an addiction, the pain of stop being isolating and not connecting to people, the pain of forgiving somebody, because I don't want to do that because I'll let them off the hook, Brandon, and if I forgive them, they might get close to me again, and I don't want that. The pain of confessing your sin to somebody that you've been hiding. The pain of humility, giving up the false image, the fake front. The pain of having to deal with God saying no to you. The pain of discipleship, it's hard work, isn't it? Day in, day out, the pain of service. That's where it's at. That's what we'll have to deal with. That's what John dealt with. And here's the deal. You remember when we were little kids? And we'd get splinters in our hands. You remember that? I don't know. I got splinters all the time messing with wood and stuff. And I get splinters all in my hands. And you'd go to mom and you'd say, Mom, I got a splinter. It's hurting me. Can you get it out? And so she'd get that cuticle cutter and some tweezers and she'd start working. And the minute she touched that splinter, where it was at? Ouch! Don't touch that. It hurts. She says, Quit being a baby and let me get the splinter out. Sit there and take it. It won't take but a second. I can see it right there. I can grab it. I can, and what inevitably has to happen, she has to cut a little skin or pinch a little bit. And it's going to hurt to get that splinter out, doesn't it? But she says, if you don't let me, I can't get this out. So eventually, you try to relax, and you feel the pain of her cutting something, and she finally gets the splinter out. She says, okay, it's all done. Go back out and play. That's what's happening. There's splinters in us in our soul or in our heart, and God's saying, will you let me take that? Will you let me pull that splinter out? I know it's causing you pain, but if you let me take it out and you go through this trial, I can remove that splinter from you, and you can be free of it. So the bottom line is we need to stop the pattern of the avoidance of the right kind of pain. Avoiding pain is not our best option. Think about what pain John endured. He didn't know if the Lord was going to miraculously save him. 
He was thrown into a pot of boiling oil. Can you imagine that? And he would not renounce Christ for that. Wow. What a testimony. Point number two. We are accountable to know the glorified Messiah in all facets of his attributes. All of them. Especially the ones in Revelation and prophecy. Like I said... Prophecy is avoided. But I want you to think about this. One-third of the Bible is prophecy. One-third. And yet it's the most avoided subject in the church today. Because you know why? They're very uncomfortable with the judgment of Messiah. And now what you're going to see is a picture of Jesus as the judge. And the whole overview of the book of Revelation is judgment, 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 judgment. It's constant throughout the book of Revelation. And what you're going to see is he's going to judge the churches, he's going to judge Israel, and then he's going to judge the world. So judgment starts and begins with the house of God. And so now you will see the theme of the book, the judgment of the Messiah. And this is what we see. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit. So he's enraptured by the Holy Spirit. John's in a translite state. He's being taken over by the Holy Spirit, and he is thrown into the future. And he sees not only Messiah, but he sees the whole future spanning uh, the tribulation period. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The word there, the Lord's day, is not a noun but an adjective. It could be translated Lordy day or Lordian day. What it means is that he was transported in a vision to the Lord's day. It's the New Testament way of saying what the Old Testament said, the day of the Lord. So he's been transported to the day of the Lord in a vision. He's enraptured by it, and he goes into the future and sees this. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What is the reference to is Jesus is the eternal one. This is a reference to Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, and Isaiah 46. When Yahweh spoke to Isaiah, now Jesus is saying the same thing because he is Yahweh. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he's saying, I'm the eternal one. If you read Isaiah 44, 45, and 46, it is Yahweh telling Israel, there are no other gods besides me. I am the only one. There are no Babylonian gods. And to put it in modern-day terms, Allah is not a god. Brahma, Shiva, Vishnu are not gods. The Mormon god is not a god. The Jehovah Witness god is not a god. Christian science god is not a god. The god of Tom Cruise, Scientology, is not a god. Right? The Catholic Jesus who didn't pay all your sins on the cross is a different Jesus. There's only one God, and he's saying, this is who I am. And what you see, he says, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia or in Turkey, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. It's seven churches, but there was more than seven churches at that time. But he picks these specific churches for a reason. Let me explain this. The eternal one, Yahweh, is saying, I have a message to the seven churches, basically to the whole church. Seven represents in the way you read Hebrew or 
the symbolic nature of numbers in the Bible is seven is completeness or perfectness. So I'm speaking to seven churches, but I'm really speaking a message to the entire complete church is what he's saying. These local churches that you see being named have local conditions that will span the epoch of the church age, and you will see this as we study the churches, that they represent not only the local church, but they represent epochs or eras of the church age. So you start with Ephesus and you end with Laodicea. You will see the whole entire history of the church age and how the church ends and how it begins and what happens throughout history of the church. And so basically you're seeing that message to the whole church. And basically what it is is an open evaluation of the churches versus compliance versus non-compliance with what Messiah desires from the church. So in some churches, he will chastise them. Some churches, he will commend them. Some churches have both a commendation and a chastisement. But basically, it's an open evaluation of church. Now, to drill deeper down, it's an open evaluation of every believer in the church. And the evaluator is Messiah. He will evaluate us. Now we continue on, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He'll explain what the lampstands are in verse 20, but just let me cut to the chase so you understand. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches or the church. And I have a picture on the screen for you. This is what it's referring to. This is a common Jewish lamp during that time period. Notice it's not a menorah. Israel's sign is a seven candelabra that has seven candles on it. It represents the light of Israel. The seven lampstands or candlesticks, but lampstands probably a better translation, represent that each church has an individual light. And that's what he's saying. So the seven churches have seven individual lights. Rock Harbor has an individual light. And each church is an individual standing light. Now, that's important because each church will be graded based on the Messiah's criteria. But that's what he's talking about there. Verse 13, we'll go back to the text. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. He instantly wants you to connect that when he sees Jesus, he sees Daniel 7. And if you read Daniel 7, you see the Son of Man, the Messiah, approach the Ancient of Days in Daniel And what it is, is the Son of Man, the Messiah, who is also eternal, receives a kingdom from the Father, the Ancient of Days. And that kingdom will have no end. But in Daniel, that kingdom comes to earth and breaks the last kingdom, which will be the revived Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is still alive with us today. Its western leg is centered in Western Europe, and its eastern leg is centered in Russia. That's where the two legs are split. The Roman Empire still exists today. It is the last empire that the Antichrist will use to govern the whole world. But when Christ comes back, he smashes it and destroys it. So it's a reference to Daniel. And then he'll say, I saw him standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. What does that mean? Well, standing in the midst means judgment, evaluation. He's aware of what's going on in the churches. 
And he's going to evaluate this. That's what all it's tied up into this imagery. And then he starts showing you what Messiah looks like in his glory. He said he was clothed with a garment down to his feet. This garment is a long robe. It is the robe of a judge, a robe that has dignity and honor, royalty. He's the king judge. And he says it's girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, it also symbolizes that he is a priest as well. The priests in the temple would put a band around them to hold down their robe so they could work and do ministry. And what it is saying is that this judge priest is about to carry out his duties by having this golden band. It means I'm getting ready to do my duties, and he's going to do his duties as judge. And then it says his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days is pictured with white hair. The idea is wisdom, purity, righteousness. He is a wise pure and righteous judge. So his his judgment is accurate. And then it goes into his eyes like a flame of fire. Fire represents judgment. The eyes of Messiah, when it references eyes looking like fire, it's referencing the omniscience of Messiah. Messiah is the God-man, which means he's omniscient. He knows all. And that omniscience is what will be used in judging the churches, judging Israel, and judging the world because he knows all. There's nothing hidden that he doesn't know. And then it says in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. The idea of brass is reference to judgment. Reference to the feet has to do with he's about to take action. He's going to take action in judgment in that reference. And his voice is like the sound of many waters. The idea here is if you've ever been next to a strong waterfall and you've heard the sound of it, it roars almost. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls or any major fall, you can hear the sound of it, but also see the power in that water. It is a reference to the Messiah's power. Not only is he the judge who knows all, he has the power To execute the judgment is what it's saying. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. These are angels. I'll explain that later, okay? We'll come back to that. The seven stars represent seven angels of the churches. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Like I said, I'll come back to the angels, but let's explain the two-edged sword. This two-edged sword is the word of God, which the Logos, the Memra, the second person of the Trinity, is the word of God. And yet, it's different than how this sword is used in Hebrews chapter 4. If you recall, in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. You might remember that passage. And that's true. That's how the Word of God is used in that sense. In Hebrews 4, it's used as uncovering unbelief in the heart of the individual. In this passage, the word romphea is used for the sword. It is the word of God, but because it's used romphea, what that means is it is a large, heavy sword 
unlike Hebrews 4, that's going to be used to slash and kill and crush enemies with. That's what that references to that sword. Again, it's a picture of Revelation 19 that he uses the sword, the word of his mouth, to crush his enemies. Okay? That's what the Romphia is talking about. And then it says, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. It's referring to the Shekinah. But that Shekinah is also a reference to the revelatory light of the Messiah, the revelatory light of the light that's used in John's gospel and now even in the book of Revelation means that the light comes in to uncover the truth of the situation in the churches and Israel and the world. What do you mean by this? Well, Jesus said it himself in understanding this idea of light or revelation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, and for fear those deeds will be exposed. It's revelatory light. Jesus also said there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you've spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Everything is coming out. You see why it makes people uncomfortable? Everything, my thoughts, my emotions, everything, my deeds will be exposed. Yeah, everything is exposed. Notice what it does to John when he sees him. This is his best friend on earth. Remember that? John was the closest to the Messiah. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It almost killed him. This is not unlike what Isaiah experienced, not unlike what Daniel experienced, not unlike what Job experienced. When they were in the presence of the eternal one, Yahweh, and in this case, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, they came apart at the seams. They literally were getting ready to die. This is the best friend of Jesus on planet earth when he was doing his ministry, and John is about to die in his presence. This is a believer almost dying. Do you see this? Do you see why this concept that Jesus is my, my sky buddy, and when I see him, I'm going to run up to him and give him a big bear hug, is foreign to the Bible? I can tell you what you're going to do when you see Messiah. You will hit the deck. You will fall down and nearly die just like John. I don't expect my experience to be any different than what John experienced because he saw the one who knows everything about him. He saw him in his glory. Now, again, think back through me. There's a fulfillment here, and I want you to see this is great. This had to remind John of an event that happened 60 years ago in his life. Again, he's 90-something years old. When he was a young man, him and James and Peter were taken to the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus said to them, to the disciples, there will be some of you that will see my coming. And indeed they did. When they went on the Mount of Transfiguration, those three disciples saw the coming of our Lord when the Shekinah glory came out of him at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Moses and Elijah appeared with the Messiah. Remember that. That was a picture of the coming of Messiah because they saw how Jesus will come back as judge in his full glory with the Shekinah. Now, let me take you to the Sea of Galilee, to another event. I want you to connect dots here. When Peter is reinstated, 
You remember that on the Sea of Galilee, after the resurrection. Peter, do you love me? Remember that, that whole scene? Then Peter is told, Peter, you're going to die, basically. He told him in a roundabout way, you're going to be martyred. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. They're going to outstretch your hands, and they're going to basically kill you. You're going to be martyred for me. And we know the, the, the tradition behind that is Peter was crucified upside down and martyred. But Peter comes back, and what's happening, if you can get the picture, is Peter is walking with the Lord, and John's behind them. You remember that scene? So Peter's told you're going to die. And Peter turns around and says, what about him? Remember that? And Messiah sternly rebukes him, and he says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Remember that? But you follow me, Peter. Mind your own business and your beeswax and stay focused on what I'm calling you to do. Don't worry about John. Now, John will explain in his text that the rumor started that John would not die. And John dispels that rumor and says that's not what he meant. Jesus did mean something. And you know what he meant? He would remain alive until he saw the coming of the Lord. And in this text, John sees the coming of the Lord. He sees Messiah in his glorified state. And what Jesus said was true in another sense. He saw it in a vision. He wasn't propelled into our time period, but he saw the coming of the Lord in that vision. And so it came true. So look what Jesus does to him. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. Now, let's parse that out a little bit. The right hand of God has been laid on John. Now, the right hand of God, if you study this in the Old Testament, is extremely important. It's the source of, source of strength, the power of God. It's the source of judgment. It is the source of authority. It's the source of rulership. And it's the hand of blessing and the hand of sacrifice. There's a message in this. He's sending a message to John by placing his right hand on him and says, do not be afraid. What's the message? Watch. I am the first and the last. That's why you don't need to be afraid, John, because of what he did. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. So I remember, John, you do not need to be afraid of me because I went to the cross, I was dead, buried, and rose on the third day. This is important for you, John. And I have the keys, or which are the symbol of authority, of Hades and of death. I have the authority, when he's talking about Hades, he's talking about hell, the place in the earth, Hades. And then he's talking about death. He's talking about physical death and spiritual death. I have the authority of physical and spiritual death. Therefore, you do not need to be afraid. You know what the message is to John? Ah, this is extremely important. When being judged by the Messiah, and if you can look at Matthew 25 and the sheep and goat judgment, people to the right of the Messiah are believers. It's the right hand of blessing the right hand of sacrifice. 
Interesting, the priests in the Old Testament were told to put blood on their right lobe, right? Do you remember that? It's always, the sacrifice was always on the right side. To the left of the Messiah are goats, unbelievers. The place you want to be when you're standing before Messiah is on his right side, because that's the right side of sacrifice, the right side of blessing. That's the hand of blessing. That's the hand of protection. You do not want to be on the left-hand side of Messiah in judgment. So by symbolic way, he's saying, John, you do not have to be afraid. You're on my right-hand side. You're a believer. I died for you and paid your sins. You do not need to be afraid of me, even though you're accountable to me. So that takes away John's fear. And that's what he does for us. We do not have to be afraid in that sense of Messiah because we're on his right side if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you won't be evaluated in another sense for your works, for your reward, but as far as being afraid of physical death or spiritual death, you and I do not need to fear that anymore. He's taken the sting out of that. Okay, a lot of symbols there, right? What's the application? The application is profound. The application is this. You must build your life on the foundation of Messiah and on the right attributes. Otherwise, you will build on the wrong foundation. Like I said, if you ignore a third of the Bible and you don't understand this concept of Jesus as being the judge... You will build on the wrong image of Jesus. Paul used a term, and you'll see this in 1 Corinthians 3, that I want to kind of flush out. This is the same concept. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, According to the grace of God which was given to me, a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed to how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay that that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Anyone's work which has been built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." So so Paul even puts the caveat on, this is not a judgment of salvation, this is a judgment of works. And your works better be built on the right foundation. Let me show you a picture that comes from Paul's day when he wrote 1 Corinthians. This would have been the temple of Apollo in Corinth that the Christians there would have seen. And Paul uses the imagery in his analogy here of building your life on the right foundation. because I laid the foundation. And in these Greek buildings, they had an, an enormous foundation for their structures. That's why they still survive today, is because they have an incredible foundation. Paul uses how the Greeks built, and he says, that's how your life must be built on with Christ. It's got to be built on the right foundation. Otherwise, you will lose rewards. Okay, what do you mean by this? This is very important. You must understand all aspects of Messiah to build on that right foundation. If not, you will have gaps in your game. Think about this. If you build on a foundation following a pastor or a teacher or some theologian or some guru, and they're wrong, you'll have the same errors. 
If you just blanket follow people, you're building on the wrong foundation. Think about the cults out there. Think about the Catholic Church who builds a foundation on Mary, worshiping Mary, worshiping the saints. That's the wrong foundation. Think about the people in, in the emergent church group that are building their lives on the social gospel, which is not the gospel at all. There's no power there. Think about the people who are doing aberrant teachings like contemplative prayer, hypercharismania, centering prayer, coloring mandals, soaking on graves. They call it grave soaking. Think about that. Wrong foundation. Think about building a foundation instead of Christ, but using marriage or your family as the foundation. People would say, well, that's a good thing. No, it's not because it's not Christ. If you build on any other foundation, you will come up empty. Well, building a foundation on wealth, position, power, work, employment, business, long foundation. And what you will find is what you find when you go to the beach and you make sandcastles. And you can do all the elaborate things with these sandcastles and make them look really good and build moats around them. But what happens the next day or that night when you leave? The tide takes it, and you come back the next day, and there's nothing there. When you and I build on the wrong foundation, the wrong Jesus, or we don't have all the aspects of Jesus, you will build your life on the wrong foundation. That's what Paul's point is. And you're spinning your wheels, and you're building sandcastles. Last point. We are accountable to obey the glorified Messiah's commands. So here's where the building material comes in. This is where you find out what are you accountable for. Now, in this passage, you're only going to see one command, and it's specifically to John, but it's a picture of us in how we're supposed to respond to Messiah. Verse 19, write, there's the command, the things which you have seen, the things which are and the things which take place after this. This is a whole prophetic scenario have the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is the only book of the Bible that chronologically details the prophetic scenario. No other book had done this before, but John was given the division of how things are to be laid out. The things that he has seen is what he's seen now with the vision of Christ, the things that are what's going to happen with the church age, and the things that will take place after that is what happens after the church age, the tribulation period. That's the whole breakdown of the book of Revelation. That's never been done before. And then he says, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The idea, we, I talked about the seven churches being the seven lampstands, but let's talk about the angels real quick. There's angels assigned to each church. What for? Are they guardian angels? Yeah, maybe, but that's not really the context of the book of Revelation. The context is judgment, and angels are used to carry out judgment throughout the book of Revelation. So what's the overarching context? The angels are assigned, good angels, to each church that has ever existed. And they stand watch over that particular church. You'll notice when we get into chapter 2 and chapter 3 that Jesus will address the angel of the particular church. He will inform the angel about what's going on inside the church because angels aren't omniscient. So he has to tell them and explain to them what's going on inside the church. Why? Why would he have to tell an angel of what's going on in that church? 
Simple. The angels are functioning in several aspects. The first aspect they're functioning as, as witnesses of the church. Is there an angel assigned to Rock Harbor? Yes. What is his job? His job is to observe us. Jesus is talking to that angel about what's going on in our congregation. He informs that angel what is happening. And what is that angel supposed to do? In the book of Revelation, angels exact judgment. So when a believer is disciplined by the Lord, guess who is doing the discipline? The angel assigned to that church. So when that happens, that's what that angel serves. And what is he serving as? As a witness. In God's economy, you need two to three witnesses. And so the angel observes, he looks, and he's used as a witness. He will be there on the judgment to be a witness. You were a part of Rock Harbor? I was, a, I was the angel assigned to that church. And at the judgment seat of Christ, that angel will be there as a witness. Again, it's a court scene. You will not be able to hide anything. Messiah already knows, but he wants a witness there to say, there's no arguments here. This happened, didn't it? And he looked at the angel. Did you see that happen? Yes, I watched that happen. So the angel becomes a testimony and a witness against that particular church, and you'll see it. And then he becomes the one who disciplines that church and the individuals in that church. So my point is, and the Scripture's point is this, you're being watched. I'm being watched. I have great accountability because angels are watching you and I, and they will be with us at judgment. They also want to know why we're exalted above them later on. They're very curious about this. They want to know that. And they will see that with believers who are obedient to the Messiah. But they're curious about that. So, yes, your life is being watched. Not only Jesus knows what you're doing, angels know, especially ones who are assigned to our church, and you're a member or a part of this congregation, you have an angel watching your life. There's no doubt about it. I'll just let you know that and let you know some bad news. You also have demons watching you. I don't mean to frighten you, but they know your every move. Angels and demons are the unseen world that you and I don't recognize because this, the book of Revelation is not taught. No one even thinks about it. I want you to think about that reality as you go home today. You have other creatures watching you. They watch you what you do behind closed doors. They see every move you make. Now, everybody knows God sees them, but even the angelic order and the demonic realm see you and I. They watch, and the good angels will be used as that testimony. With that being said, what are they watching? What's going to be evaluated? Your ability to obey the commands. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. What commands? Not for salvation? No, 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 not, not for salvation. Commands for being a good Christian, commands for maturing in the Messiah. Those are all the things that you're going to be evaluated on. That's the criteria. Now, you just see one command. Now, that's not a command, obviously, for us. But where are the commands? What am I supposed to be doing? It's in the New Testament. From about year one and a half, when Israel rejects Messiah, Messiah starts preparing the church in the Gospels. So if you go through partway through the Gospels, through... Revelation chapter 3, that's where your commands are. 
That's what the criteria you and I will be evaluated on. And that's what will be used against us or for us. In what? In rewarding us or not rewarding us. You know what the number one thing, the number one problem why Christians don't obey? It's not because they just don't want to and they're shaking their fist at God. It's not that. It's biblical illiteracy is number one. They just don't know what those commands are. What, is, what does God expect of me? And then number two, it's ignorance about themselves. Longstanding immaturities are in denial. They resist, rationalize, minimize, blame, lack of structure. All that stuff contributes to a lack of disobedience. But I'm telling you, the judge is watching. And I don't mean to frighten you, but this image of Jesus is very rarely taught because it brings accountability to our lives. It is scary. Why do you think then Paul used the word, the terror of the Lord, for believers? I'm not worried about my salvation. You know what I'm worried about? If I'm living a good Christian life. If he can say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I'm afraid of. I don't want him to say, you wicked and lazy servant. I don't want him saying that. That scares me. But it comes down to accountability. We're going to answer someday. You know, the interesting thing of when you look at an illustration of what doctors' biggest problems are, and I know there's a lot of quack doctors out there. I get that, and you probably run into a lot of them. But you know what the biggest problem for doctors are? Uncooperative patients. Think about this. 90% of doctors' patients... Do not follow doctor's orders. What do you mean by that? Well, doctor tells them you need to finish this medication out. You need to stay on it. They don't. They don't finish the prescription out. Doctor puts them on a certain diet to help them. They don't stay on the diet. They break it. They don't go to follow-ups. They don't do preventive medicine. They have a detailed program of treatment, and they don't follow it. And they just go merrily along with their lives. And then something hits, and then their health deteriorates, and there's nothing the doctor can do because it's too late, and then they die. Now, as a pastor, I have to be around death constantly. It's just part of the job. I have seen dozens and dozens of people die because they're not doing medically what they're supposed to do. They're just simply ignoring it. They got pain, they got bleeding, there's stuff going on. They don't go to the doctor, and then they die. It's too late. And then you know what's the, 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 the ironic thing at the funeral? I, I don't know if it's ironic. Maybe I should say it's consistent, okay? I've been to a lot of funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. Do you know what they play at the funeral for that person that ignored medical advice? They play Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And I want to say, you sure did. You sure did do it your way. And now the end has come. And it's just, I did it my way. And, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness. How consistent is this song for you? And I think it's so amazing that that same principle is applied to Jesus. Hey, look, you're going to be evaluated by the judge. And you either lived your life doing it your way or you do it his way. 
Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.